Mark chapter 15 and beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, But he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed. His last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. Well, of course, this is a well-known story. In fact, I could wager a bet if I was a betting man, which you'll be glad to know I'm not, uh, that there's probably no one here who doesn't know that Christians believe that Jesus was crucified. Nor, I would uh, suppose, I would guess, there's no one here who doesn't know that Christians believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. What is more, uh, again, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would imagine that I could go up on the street, in the streets in downtown Chicago or in Wheaton, certainly in Wheaton, uh, yeah, and, and, and ask someone, uh, how did Jesus die? And I pretty much guarantee that just about everyone would know that Christians at least believe that Jesus died on a cross. And if I asked this imaginary interlocutor of mine, the person I was talking to, what what Christians believe happened three days later, I can almost guarantee that just about anyone would know that Christians believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. This, of course, presents a challenge when you look at this story. As it originally happened, it was a deep surprise. The king of the Jews crucified? How could that be? What on earth does it mean that he would rise again from the dead? And yet for us, reading this story is a bit like reading a much-loved, maybe, or at least very familiar whodunit in Agatha Christie when we know for sure that it was the butler in the library with the revolver who did it. And, well, we might sort of read it through again and be reminded of the story and find it vaguely interesting. But it's unlikely to be life-changing anymore. We know what's going to happen. As I say, this presents us with a real challenge. For as Mark is writing this story, he wants us to see that it's a surprise. And the challenge for anyone who's preaching on this passage 
is to preach it in such a way that the originally intended power by God's Spirit of that astonishing surprise that the, the king and his kingdom comes through a crucified king would be felt, experienced, believed, appreciated, that it would be transformative for individuals and churches and society and schools and countries. And this theme of the king and the kingdom and being a crucified king is, is throughout it. I'm sure you picked it up as I was reading it out. You're all very clever people, but let me just mention a few things. Look, verse 2 says, are you the king of the Jews? And then again, verse 9, it says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Verse 12, what, then what shall I do for the king of the Jews? Jesus as the king is, is right throughout this whole chapter. And of course, their mocking and the purple cloak and the crown of thorns and all this is intended to, 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 to make mockery of the idea that he's the king. And they salute him, hail king of the Jews, same idea, king, being central uh, to it. And then right across uh, the top of the cross where he is crucified, it says the king of the Jews. It's all about his kingship. And then they tease him, he cannot save himself like the Christ, the king. Come down, the king of Israel. It's all about his kingship. And then right at the end, we'll get to in a moment as we go through the passage, you get Joseph of Arimathea who's looking for what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom and the king and how the kingdom of God comes is all throughout this passage. And the surprise, as it originally happened, as it originally was written by Mark, is intended to be this comes through a crucified king. I wonder how we think the kingdom of God will come in power in this world in this church, in our lives, through politics, through manipulative maneuvering, psychological techniques, just the right atmosphere created by just the right music, that will do it? Or is it through a crucified king? And to help us feel and see and believe and understand the power of this surprise, Mark, throughout the story, has interwoven three characters that I want to draw out for us and hope will bring it all home to us. The first, of course, is Barabbas. This is right at the heart of the first 15 verses or so. We come across him to begin with in verse 7. He, who is Barabbas? He's one of the rebels in prison. He committed murder in the insurrection. There was a man called Barabbas. Don't get hung up on. You can probably find somewhere in the nether regions of the internet someone discussing the meaning of the name Barabbas. Does it mean son of the father or something like that? Almost certainly the name Barabbas was simply a fairly commonplace name um, and he's, his name is Barabbas the point that Mark tells is not some secret idea about his name but that he is what a rebel who committed murder 
That's the point of Barabbas. And what happens to Barabbas? Well, of course, what happens to Barabbas, verse 15, is Barabbas is released and Jesus is crucified. So here's the first surprise, and it will be a surprise to some here. The heart of the message of the cross is not that Jesus is the perfect example that we should follow. Obviously, there is an exemplary function to the cross, but that is not the heart of the message of the cross. The heart of the message of the cross is that it is a substitution. Barabbas, the murderer, goes free. Jesus, the Prince of Life, dies in his place. He takes the wrath of God that Barabbas rightly deserved. He takes his sin. He takes the penalty of God against the sins of Barabbas and dies in his place so Barabbas is free. So my dear friend, if you came in this morning thinking that college church, that Josh Moody is trying to get me to be good and I don't feel like I'm a good person, I have sinned. I have watched what I should not have watched on the internet. Uh, Perhaps you have committed murder. I've come across people who have. Perhaps you are a murderer. And here is Barabbas. And he goes free. But if you have not physically committed murder, perhaps the reason why you're the top of your career is because you have murdered the reputations of others in order to get there. You're as good as a murderer. What hope is there for you? None but for the heart of the cross. The kingdom of God comes through a crucified king who died in our place. Barabbas, as we all are. That is good news. You go free. Free. You're released. Well, the second character in the story is the centurion, which also will be a surprise to some. And this is right at the heart, the pinnacle of this section in many ways, and indeed the pinnacle of the whole gospel in many ways. Uh, the, the, The crucifixion itself runs in the middle part of this chapter, of course, from verse 16 to verse 40 or so. But at the pinnacle of it is this centurion. We've had Barabbas that teaches us about the substitution. It's the heart of the temple. And now we have the centurion that teaches us about the necessary response of confession of faith. Verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last. And I, I, I've often wondered whether Mark is referring to it explicitly what... He talks about in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I think he may be, or it may be the centurion who was certainly familiar, if not involved with all that had happened previously in his mockery and his crucifixion, had seen all that had gone on with Jesus and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which of course is a fulfillment of Psalm uh, 22. He'd seen all this and seen his righteousness, and finally the centurion, having seen the whole thing, I think that's probably more likely that the the last breathing of of his last was like the final moment. 
he said, truly this man was son of God. Now that is the pinnacle moment of the whole gospel. If you have a Bible, come back with me to Mark chapter 1 verse 1 and you'll see how Jesus announces, uh, Mark announces his purpose of his gospel of Jesus. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that of course is Jesus the Messiah, who is who? The Son of God. That is the story that Mark is telling, how Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, is Son of God. That's the whole purpose of his whole gospel, to tell us that and then call us to live and believe and then live in light of who Jesus is, the Son of God. And where is that finally revealed? For the first time, In the whole gospel, a human rightly declares that Jesus is Son of God and it takes place where? At the cross. Jesus is revealed above all places at Golgotha when he's crucified as Son of God. And that means our deeply pained world, our suffering world, our our, our frustrated world, our world filled with mental illness and physical illness, where Jesus is declared to be God incarnate, is at the cross. Surely this is Son of God, how he loves us, how he died for us, and therefore the centurion declares at the cross he's Son of God, but it's even more surprising than that. Who is it who finally declares, who gets it right? A Roman. And not just any Roman, a Roman centurion of all people. Is the hero of the whole story in many ways. I mean, Jesus is the hero, but he's the one who spots that Jesus, who Jesus is, and he's the son of God. A Roman does it. He identifies correctly Jesus, the son of God. A Roman centurion. It's hard to come up with a sufficient analogy of what that would be like today, but it would be a bit like today if in an occupied part of Ukraine someone told one of those Ukrainians a story where the hero of the story was a Russian tank commander. A Roman, the occupying power. And not just any Roman, a Roman centurion. The military command of an occupying force, the Roman centurion, a pagan background, he gets it. What a surprise. And you see, what that means for us is that we too need to confess that Jesus is Son of God. Verbally, articulated. The Apostle Paul says, if we believe in our heart and confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we'll be saved. He confesses, we had a confession of the Apostles' Creed earlier, to verbally confess. He confesses that Jesus is Son of God. And in all the immature, germinal, not fully formed ways that must have been in the confusion of his mind from a pagan background. Nonetheless, he spots that this is the one. He is Son of God. And in our increasingly pagan, relativistic, pluralistic age, where like in Roman Empire times, we're much more like those days, where there are many different gods that are on the table as options, many different ideologies in our syncretistic worldview of all sorts of pick and mix 
options. We as a church, each of us as individuals, need to confess that Jesus is Son of God. That's why when we do our baptisms here, I don't know whether you notice this, we have the baptismal candidates not only confess that Jesus is their personal Savior, which of course is wonderful. He is my personal Savior, and I hope he is your personal Savior. But not only is he their personal Savior, he is the and the only Savior and Lord. Uniquely, Jesus is revealed to be God incarnate at the cross who died for us. Buddha did not die for me. Muhammad did not die for me. Marx did not die for me. Son of God was crucified for me. And therefore, we must confess that he is the and the only Son of God. Have you confessed that? Have you been baptized? made a public confession in a public place that you follow that Jesus person as Son of God. can be a challenge these days, can't it? The Knight Foundation in 2019 did a survey of students across the country. I think it was college students, but it may have been high school students. I, I can't remember exactly. But 2019, they did a survey of students, and I think in either case it would pertain to discover that 68% of students didn't think that they could be upfront with what they thought in case of offending someone else. We live in a day when we greatly fear causing offense to someone's feelings. And of course, we should be kind and we should uh, communicate in ways with an open hand, not a clenched fist against other people for sure. But with all those parameters in place, we also need to clearly confess Jesus is Son of God. If a Roman centurion can do it, Mark is saying, surely you can. Surely you can. So we have Barabbas, that teaches us about the substitution of the cross. We have the centurion that challenges us to confess that Jesus is Son of God like he did. And then finally, I think most surprisingly, I think it will be an encouraging surprise for us all, we have Joseph of Arimathea, of whom many popular legends used to be told in medieval times. I'm sure most of them are legendary. But uh, he's a figure that in many ways was more well-known and has been forgotten in more recent uh, Christian circles. Joseph of Arimathea. Look how Mark describes him in verse 43. He is a respected member of the council. Stop there. Isn't that amazing? Joseph of Arimathea, in other words, is a part of the Sanhedrin, the council that had convicted Jesus of blasphemy and handed over him over him handed him over to the Roman authorities that he would be crucified. Joseph is part of that council. And not only a part of that council, he's a respected member of the council. A powerful figure, a religious leader. He's one of them. But also, Mark says, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Uh, to be looking for the kingdom of God in Mark's gospel always means that 
The person is on Jesus' side. So Joseph of Arimathea is on Jesus' side. He's looking for the kingdom of God, and yet he was a part of that group that the council, the Sanhedrin, who sent Jesus to die. Was he outvoted? Did he keep quiet like the rest of the disciples? For fear of what would happen to him. If they're going to treat Jesus this way, what, how would they treat his followers? And yet now, Mark says, Joseph took courage. He goes to Pilate, which would have been a public thing to do. He would put him at risk, and he asks for the body of Jesus. Presumably, I suppose we don't know for sure, but presumably Joseph, like the rest of the disciples, was not overtly expecting the resurrection. Jesus had taught about it, but they couldn't believe it, and that among his closest disciples. So presumably Joseph, in the same way, was not expecting the resurrection. He's just trying to treat Jesus' body well. He's trying to give him a decent burial. And he's a wealthy man, so he has a special uh, tomb cut in the rock. He describes that a little bit uh, later. Uh, and he, he rolls a stone against the entrance to the tomb. And he, he has money. He has power. He has prestige. He publicly now goes to Pilate and associates himself with this Jesus person and gives him a decent burial. It took courage. In some ways, it takes more courage to stand up for what counts when you no longer think it will make any difference. Jesus is dead, and he will soon be buried. And yet Joseph publicly associates himself with him. Uh, when uh, Winston Churchill was in uh, one of his darkest moments and was trying to have the courage to do what he believed was right, someone said to him that this is a lost cause, to which Churchill replied, lost causes are the only ones worth fighting for. Do you think it's a lost cause, your marriage? Your children? Your city? Your country? Your school? Oh, it's all too late. It's dead and will soon be buried. And therefore, I'll keep quiet and hide. No, 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 no. Now is the time to take courage and stand up. Oh, it may feel like it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. Joseph of Arimathea, he didn't, even, he didn't even know that, and yet he took courage. Christian, take courage. Stand up for what you believe. Speak the truth. Don't be intimidated by the anti-Christian stuff out there. Take courage.
This is a, a political illustration from a, a controversial figure. Uh, some people loved her, other people hated her, vilified her. Margaret Thatcher was deeply controversial and had no doubt many faults. But one of her redeeming qualities was uh, the Iron Lady had courage. One of her redeeming qualities was courage. And one time in, early in her premiership, she was uh, in a meeting with some other European political leaders, and they were pushing her to do something that she felt was wrong, and she simply point-blank refused. I'm not going to do it. And they kept on pushing her and pushing her, and then as she, once she refused, they went public, uh, basically throwing her under the bus and dismissing her. But in private, it is recorded. One of those political leaders said to the other, after they'd witnessed her stand for truth, said, Britain is back. That's a political illustration. And as I say, a, a woman who's controversial and some hate her and some love her. But you will never know, Christian, the impact that your courage will have even when it seems like it's Friday and it's dead and soon will be buried and it's all over and it's night and there's no hope, that is the moment to take courage. It's darkest before the dawn. Go to Pilate. Get the body. Give it a decent burial. You never know. On the third day, it may rise again. The substitution gives hope to us all. The confession, a call for us all to confess faith and courage. You never know. You might be called to the Middle East. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for uh, Mark's gospel. As we uh, come soon to the end of it, we want to give you thanks for uh, Mark and his faithfulness in writing it. And we thank you for your word and inspiring it so that we could have it and preserving it so we can have it in, in, in a book in front of us in our own language. Uh, this uh, morning, Lord, we give you thanks specifically that even though we are Barabbas, every single one, because of uh, the Son of God's death on a cross, we are released. And we go free. And uh, this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to confess with our mouth as well as believe in our hearts that Jesus is Son of God. Perhaps be baptized. Or for the first time, tell a friend, yes, actually, we do follow Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do that. Even in this pluralistic pagan world like the centurion confessed 
Jesus, truly Son of God. But Lord, perhaps most of all, for our homes, our lives, our society, our churches, our schools, we pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of courage as a church, that we uh, would boldly proclaim the gospel, not insensitively, not rudely, not unwisely, but yes, courageously. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.